This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The numbers of people fleeing Syria and other countries in that region from the ongoing battles uh, with ISIS are staggering. Estimates right now up to 4 million people or more are looking for new places to live because of the conflicts going on right now. But some more so than others. The process of getting these people set up in new locations is an unbelievably daunting task right now and also provides some risk assessment questions as well. Joining us here in the studio to look at all of this and this topic is Sarah Paoletti, who directs the Transnational Legal Clinic, University of Pennsylvania's Law School, International Human Rights and Immigration Clinic. She joins us here along with Wharton's Bob Meyer, who is co-director of the Risk Management and Decision Processes Center. Great to have you both in the studio. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank Thanks. you. Great to have you. Uh, Sarah, I mean, the, the video is staggering. I, I mean, seeing the it, it's literally waves of people that are just moving across various countries to get to Europe and to try to find, find a place place to live. Uh, from, uh, from a legal perspective, how tough is it to deal with all of these new people moving into various countries across Europe and potentially across the globe? Well, I think from a legal perspective, it's incredibly challenging because when we look at and talk about migrants and refugees, we're talking about individuals who are each in- entitled to some sort of individualized assessment to determine whether they're refugees, what their rights are under the law, under international law, uh, and then what long-term resettlement prospects there are for them. Uh, So when you look at it under a legal framework that is really set up as an individualized assessment uh, for refugees, it becomes a a daunting task, certainly. And and from a financial perspective, Bob, this is an unbelievable, unbelievable amount of money that's going to be spent by the EU, by various countries, in order to make these people feel comfortable for wherever they end up. Yeah, uh, certainly. And, and I, I think that to some degree, for particularly uh, countries such as Germany, I think that the way they're looking at it as uh, maybe a more positive one is a, uh, that it's a case of uh, uh, very large short-term pain for hopefully uh, long-run positive gain. Because uh, uh, there's just a lot of evidence that shows that uh, uh, refugee-type immigration prices often are, are, are long-run <clears throat> good positive for, for economies. Well, and the interesting thing, I guess, right now is that we have so many countries. The EU is trying to put together a plan uh, to have a, as many people accepted in a variety of countries as possible. The U.S. obviously is taking uh, a, a strong look a, as to what they can do at this point. The, the United States has obviously been considered the melting pot for many, many years. But this is a situation, Sarah, that, that they do have to kind of really take a long look at and, and see how many people how they want to handle this going forward. Absolutely. I think even as as long as two years ago, I was in Geneva talking with folks at the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, and they were talking about Syria as a protracted refugee situation. This wasn't a situation where we could temporarily house migrants, uh, house refugees with the expectation that they're going to return in six months or a year, which yeah. was sort of how the typical refugee system had been set up. And I think once you recognize that these are protracted situations that require resettlement options, you can't expect the first countries 
at which the migrant, you know, the borders at which the migrants arrive <laughs> to resettle all of them. And you have to look towards long-term solutions. And that really does require global cooperation beyond just the European region. That's interesting. You bring up the fact that this has really been something that's been thought of for a couple of years now, that they knew that this specific problem was really on the forefront. And I don't know if they anticipated the numbers that we sure. see today, but yeah. certainly that this was a situation that was not going to resolve itself quickly is something that that has been on the agenda and has been recognized. From the risk management perspective, Bob, I mean, it, just when you look at, at what is going on right now, what what goes through your mind when you're thinking about all the different things that are kind of involved in this process? Well, there's several. I, I, you can start off with kind of the level of the, the mindset of the refugee, that, that uh, there's a lot of uh, a diversity, a cacophony of, of sorts of images that come across, and some yeah. of them is the, the enormous risks that they, they undertake to basically uh, embark um, and going across the Mediterranean and so forth. And I, I think for a lot of them, they look at it, and there's a tendency, a natural human tendency, to kind of look at what's the upside and uh, and. And certainly they're aware of the risk, but they but they kind of say, well, this is probably not. It's, it's unfortunate it happened to other people, but I'm going to be one. I'm going to be one of the survivors. I'm going to be the one that's going to be able to succeed doing this. And and they see just tremendous upside of, um, of of life and a much better life. For example, living in Germany than they ever possibly could um, back home. And and I think also some of them see it also maybe not necessarily as a permanent move, but basically as an opportunity to kind of uproot their family, get themselves settled, get them um, get get to a better life and then and then at some point perhaps when things stabilize within Syria uh, perhaps being able to go back at a later point what is the process Sarah of how you determine what people what families are going to what countries because we hear so many countries that that say okay Australia has said that they are willing to take 12,000 I think it is and and various countries have said we will help but how, how does that process really really even happen not very effective. Well, all right, yeah. So, uh, you know, it is a it is a challenging process, and I think what what countries are always looking for in talking about resettling refugees is where does the refugee have a tie? So, are mm -hmm. there any family ties? Are there language ties? Are there cultural ties? Is there anything that will connect that refugee and help the refugee integrate? Um, when we talk about refugee crises. Um, we sometimes talk about the triple trauma paradigm. So there's the mm -hmm. trauma of leaving the country or the trauma that provoked the departure, the trauma in transit, and then the trauma in the destination country mm -hmm. of being a refugee in a strange land. Uh, and so when you're looking to resettle, family ties is probably the number one thing that countries look for when they're identifying who they're going to resettle in country. And, and then obviously it, the other part about it is, as you said, Bob, it, is they have to make these people feel comfortable, but the people also have to get past a, an unbelievable amount of challenges in terms of just being in a new country. They probably don't know a lot of people unless they have family in right, that area. Right. There's the potential, you know, these people, many of them are walking, you know, hundreds of miles to get to wherever they are their personal well-beings have to be of concern as well. Right, and certainly, and there's also, like, I think, a large uh, sort of local political uh, uh, consideration that goes there in terms of the degree to which the host company, people in the host country are willing to, to uh, open open their arms to uh, immigrants coming in. I, I think you just mentioned a couple minutes ago about uh, the United States sort of re-looking at this, and yeah. unfortunately, this is not coming at a good time vis-a-vis -vis, uh, um, U.S. attitudes towards uh, immigration when there's, uh, you sure. know, Trump is out there saying, well, we need to build walls. 
walls and all of a sudden we say, oh, okay, well, let's open our doors to uh, uh, to Syrian refugees. And this may be not be the best place to um, uh, best timing for that. Uh, but 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 Germany, on the other hand, um, there's been a, a fairly large over the last recent years um, uh, shift in public attitudes where there is a greater willingness to uh, among among people there to to accept immigrants and see the positives. And at some level, I, I'm guessing that the people that make these decisions uh, here in the United States have that level of concern of what if some of these people that are coming in yeah. are, are tied to ISIS at, at some point? And that is obviously a concern as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the things that actually hasn't, there has not been as much coverage of is in some sense, what is going to be the uh, the, the risk of terrorism that's associated with that. With uh, Certainly, it's the case when you have uh, hundreds of thousands of people coming across and there's a, a, um, early initial screening, just how deep can that screening process go? Uh, and so that's, and what that will be, we don't know yet. So We are joined here in the studio uh, by Bob Meyer uh, of the Wharton School, who's the co-director of the Risk Management Decision Processes Center, also uh, with uh, Sarah Paoletti of the uh, University of Pennsylvania Law School in their International Human Rights and Immigration Clinic. I guess then when people are, are moving into these new, new countries, Sarah, their status within that country ends up being what? And what is the time frame for them? And I guess it's, you know, each country is different in terms of them trying to get citizenship status in that particular country. Right. So it, it depends dramatically and, and varies. And so the first question is whether they have been resettled as a refugee. Um, if they are arriving as a resettled refugee, they have refugee status, which grants them certain rights and privileges under international law in terms of access to education uh, and other services and benefits, access to uh, work authorization uh, and things like that. But uh, if they are just uh, being treated as migrants, then there's got to be an assessment that they qualify as a refugee, mm -hmm. uh, and then they'll be entitled to those rights. But until they get some recognition of some legal status, um, their rights are limited at, at best. Uh, in terms of the time frame, so in the United States, you come as a, you get asylum status or you come as a refugee, you wait a certain number of years before you can adjust your status to legal permanent residency. Mm -hmm which is a separate application fee process, uh, another screening opportunity. Uh, and then after that, you wait another year before you can apply for your citizenship. But even the, the numbers, the small numbers that the U.S. has said that they would take in at least right now, uh, and tell me if I'm correct on this, that the process of those people actually coming to the United States in the first place is quite a long period of time to begin with, correct? It is. Often with refugee resettlement, it's a process of a it's a petitioning process. I mean, sometimes the U.S. will just bring them um, and sometimes it's a petitioning process. And so depending on what mechanism they set up will vary on how the refugees get here and are treated um, to the degree that it goes through the State Department and the State Department's Office of Refugee uh, Processing. It's a slightly different process. Um, once it comes to the U.S. and it's going through the U.S. system, um, we have extreme backlogs in our immigration system in general. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so all of this plays into backlogs in 
other areas of immigration <laughs> uh, and creates other problems within sort of the immigration system. Um, so figuring out and making sure that there are mechanisms in place to do this efficiently and effectively up front at the very beginning is critical to the program's success. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're talking uh, about the uh, refugee crisis ongoing uh, throughout uh, Europe, uh, coming, you know, millions of people coming out of Syria and that uh, portion of the country, right, or I should say portion of the world right now. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We mentioned about the United States uh, maybe, you know, looking at the process of taking in people from this part of the world. Do you think that the U.S. should be doing more? Again, 844-942-7866. One of the articles I read talked a lot about, I guess, in terms of what the European Union may do, that the focus really should be on Germany, France, and Spain, because those are the three biggest countries. They have the largest GDPs, uh, that those are the countries that, that... at least right now, are probably could handle a larger amount uh, of people. Is that probably how, Bob, how you see it as how this will play out over the next several months? Yeah, de- definitely. I know there's been a lot of pressure for Spain to take on more, and it, it's a complicated thing. It's, as I mentioned before, it's sort of a what's the appetite of the popula- home, home population to absorb the people? Uh, what, to what degree do they have the resources to do it? Uh, for example, you were talking about um, the, the time lag. Uh, what, one of the real challenges is, is though we might be able to say, well, you know, in 30, 40 years, we'll kind of look back and say, well, how great this period was because it really helped, um, uh, was a boost to the population and created jobs and so forth and so forth. In the short run, you have probably, perhaps, I know in Germany, for example, it's a three-year period before people can actually go out and and join the labor force. Well, Mm. what's going to happen in that three-year limbo period when you have, um, you know, one imagines sort of camps and so forth of of an enormous uh, outlay of expenditures to keep these people going and, and in some sense that you might find that public appetite turns negatively. Well, and it's the lifestyle that that yeah. probably those people, you know, certainly they, they, they're they moving to another country, hopefully to find a better lifestyle. But if it takes them three years to be able to even get started on the process of the lifestyle, you know, how do those people feel for those three years? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if you have any uh, <laughs> sense for that. I mean, I can talk about it from the perspective of, of prior refugee situations and, yeah. and prior refugee crises where people have been in a state of limbo for three, four, five, six, ten years oh um, in refugee camps. Um, and uh, Liberian refugees, for example, who were in a refugee camp for almost 20 years, talked about how they needed to be resettled so that they could rebuild their heart and rebuild their mind, and then they would be in a position to go back and rebuild their country. And I think it is particularly when you're looking at youth um, and school age individuals, they feel like their life is being wasted if they don't have access to education and opportunity. Um, And it is a very difficult experience. So then it makes that decision even tougher because you are... You're leaving, you know, obviously a bad situation, but at least potentially you have, especially if you're a kid, you have a somewhat of a known quantity, whatever education you're getting at that level, you know, in that country, to go to a, a new lifestyle where you may not be able to get any education. Absolutely. And I think that's an important piece is that when we're looking at refugee crises, it is a very personal, individualized decision that goes into the decision to flee. Um, there is always the hope, I think it's human nature to hope that you can achieve something better and particularly achieve something better for your children uh, and looking for that opportunity and the the optimism and hope that you'll succeed. 
And so when you're confronted with some of the challenges and realities that refugees confront in transit and in the destination country, it becomes that much more difficult. One of the other uh, topics that's been brought up with this as well are the Gulf countries, which have said they're not taking any refugees at all, What you know, whatsoever. Now, whether that changes down the road, but there was a, a great map, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, that showed... Uh, or actually may have been put by the BBC, excuse me, that showed the numbers of, of refugees, uh, you know, Jordan had like 600,000 and I think Turkey had like 1.2 million or something like that number. And Saudi Arabia and Qatar and, and those countries, zero. And certainly that's, that's uh, something that I think needs to be addressed as well. If you can, you know, change the mindset, I guess, at this point, correct? I think absolutely. And I think one of the things that we have to also pay attention to as we look at the smuggling networks are the trafficking networks. Sure. Uh, yeah. Because those countries are accepting labor migrants. Uh, and so people then get wrapped up into the opportunity to leave through any opportunity possible, the opportunity to leave with a job. Uh, and then you run into the possibility of people getting channeled into labor trafficking and other forms of human trafficking that we have to be mindful of. Yeah, and, and I think that also that if you keep think of countries like um, uh, Dubai and Qatar and so forth, they're, they're all, as it is due to their labor force, they're already 80 uh, uh, percent non-national. They're, it, and, and, yeah. so, and so as a consequence, they feel, well, we're already at 80 percent. I mean, we're, we're kind of at the upper limit as it is. What is the, the, the effect on economies just in general? You were talking about that earlier. Uh, just from a, kind of an overall perspective, I mean, you talked about that it has the potential to boost a country's economy, but obviously with the time frame we're talking about here, there's a little bit of a drag at the outset before you can really see those benefits. Right. I, I think, for example, uh, what people always look at, for example, within the United States is sort of the you know, great example, positive example of the economic impact of, uh, uh, of refugee immigration would be the, uh, would be the uh, uh, fle- fleeing from Cuba in the sure. 1960s, where, uh, and sort of the, the standard story is, is that often you have, in most populations, uh, education tends to follow a bell-shaped curve, mm-hmm. whereas immigrant populations tend to follow a U-shaped curve in education. So as a consequence, you get two types of people coming in, either the very, very highly skilled ones who are in a situation to start up businesses and so forth, but also you have kind of the lower end, which is a positive in the sense that they're willing to take on jobs that the existing population can't. And so effectively, when you uh, when you kind of put that melting pot together, it actually, it's a it's, it's in the long run, it's a very good source for, uh, for, for a lot of growth. Now, even though the United States has kind of been uh, taking a little bit of grief right now because of, of the few numbers that they say, at least right now they're willing to accept. One of the things that maybe probably hasn't been talked about a lot is I guess the United States is providing quite a bit of of financial support for these people as they are moving to various parts of the the world right now. The number I saw was $4 billion in terms of different types of aid that that they're providing right now as a country. Yeah, I, and I think that that's probably a, a, a you know that's one way to help out in the short run, uh, sort of given the challenges of bringing them over here and settling them in here, and, and the the political resistance that would exist here. What are the types of of aid that that would kind of fall under that category? You um, know? Yeah, I'm, so mostly it's humanitarian aid. Yeah. Uh, it's humanitarian aid. It's rescue. It's food. It's it's uh, support for infrastructure. Uh, development. And I think one of the challenges when you're looking at refugee crises like the one we're looking at now is figuring out how to transition that from immediate crisis humanitarian aid Mm -hmm. to long-term development aid. Uh, And what are sort of the development tools that we can look at to facilitate integration of refugee communities in their long-term settlement 
education, job training, um, job placement opportunities, so that we're then looking at the economic benefit on a shorter time frame rather than a longer time frame. I think as long as you address this purely as a humanitarian crisis with a short-term vision, Mm -hmm. you run the risk of exacerbating the cost, the challenges, and the difficulties down the road. With with even this being, uh, as you alluded to before, uh, uh, an event that really we, we you could see coming for quite a, while, quite a long time, was Europe ready for this? I mean, maybe not the numbers, but, you know, from just a, a logistical standpoint, you know, because of the fact that now they're putting into plan, you know, we'd like to see 160,000, you know, refugees in various countries, you know, in the in the short term. It doesn't seem like th- that this was really set up properly, you know, expecting any kind of level of, of refugees coming out. I think that's right. I don't think Europe was ready for this. Um, we wouldn't see it at the levels of crisis that we're seeing now in terms of the humanitarian crisis if Europe was ready for it. And part of it is figuring out how to change their system as, as the European system, where it is the obligation of the, the arrival country to figure out how to process the individual as a refugee yeah. before that person can move anywhere else. Um, and that put an incredible burden on the receiving countries and to some degree a, a disproportionate burden that they didn't want to accept. And so then... It, be, it the crisis magnified as as those sort of borderline countries decided they couldn't handle uh, the numbers and and the processing, and then you've got the problems you see of people stuck in Turkey, people stuck in Hungary, trying to get to Germany yeah. um, that we've seen recently. And this is a, a you know this is happening as as we speak right now, but you know there's really no end in sight in in this, correct? Well, and I think the other reason why you see that is because you have people who went to Iraq, right? You have people sure. who went to Jordan, uh, and those countries are, are overwhelmed, and the, the security situation in Iraq is not what sure. it was with yeah. people, that people thought it was going to be. So you're seeing secondary migration. Uh, and then when you deal with secondary migration, you have a whole nother level of complication, both legally and from a humanitarian perspective. Uh, what, from, from a logistical standpoint, is being done in those countries right now to be able to manage the massive amounts of people? Because as you said, you get to one country, you get to Jordan, or you get to Iraq, you obviously can see that the situation is not great. You want to go someplace else. That's a process in, in, in and itself. It is a process in and of itself, and it's one that's often left to the individual families and the individuals. Uh, there really isn't uh, a strong system in place for secondary migration, and I think that's why trying to figure out where to get people resettled at the very outset becomes a critical piece of the puzzle. Yeah, and, and I, I also think that um, w- one of the things that's going on is also this uh, t- challenge between uh, trying to figure out just uh, um, how much risk that you want to impose on people to do it. I, I, I think that you had mentioned earlier about this idea that uh, trying to make the differentiation between someone who's uh, moving just because they think there's a better job opportunity yeah. and it's a get-out-of-jail-free card as opposed to people who are real refugees. And and I know one of the issues that, for example, that uh, that England, United Kingdom has raised for why they might be a little bit reluctant to, uh, to open their doors as much as others is is if we open the door too wide, uh, it basically make it too attractive uh, to people, and so so it's a very very fine line in terms of you want to be uh, accommodating, you want to do whatever you can to support these people, but at the same time, if you make it too easy and too open, then in some sense you're getting people who are it's hard to tell who's a real refugee and who's uh, who's just simply taking advantage of a situation. Well, it's 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 a staggering situation to just kind of see it unfold from. 
you know, from a, a logistical perspective to see, you know, people who obviously felt relatively secure, obviously they had to deal with a variety of, of very dangerous incidents going on in, in Syria, to have to pick up and move. I, I mean, I, it's when was the last time we saw anything close to this? I mean, I, I can't remember the last time we saw something like this before. I think that's right. And in, in sort of my knowledge, I think about Liberia, um, where two thirds of the country left at some point during yeah. the course of the conflict. Uh, but it is hard. And I think it's also important to recognize mixed migration motives. So there is a, a an environment of fear where something could happen to you any day. And that then can be compounded by economic forces and other forces that ultimately force somebody to move. And I think more needs to be done to understand why people are leaving. Uh, and more needs to be done at the international level to reassess the Refugee Convention and the international legal framework that governs refugee crises to recognize that the notion of, of forced migration is broader than mm -hmm the narrow legal category of a refugee as it currently exists under international law. Bob, you mentioned about the economy and the benefits that could potentially be down there, down the road. Uh, in the short term, obviously, there are there are hills that have to be climbed. But are there economic issues that are even long term that are on the negative side of this as well? Uh, well, possibly. I, I mean, the standard uh, um, sort of resistance that one gets from the standing population is, well, we're bringing all these people in and they're going to take our jobs uh, and, and so forth. Yeah. And that's sort of a natural, uh, a natural pushback. And I, and I do think sort of locally that does tend to be the, the case. And uh, But at the same time, people who are sort of very uh, economists who've looked at the upside of, um, of immigration will point out the fact that, for example, I saw a statistic recently where 44% um, of the startups in Silicon Valley um, are, are or one of the co-founders is an immigrant. Yeah. And so you look at that and say, well, gee, there's an enormous possibility of great job creation. Uh, I mean, you, for example, you think about who is it, what are, what are the kinds of people that are going to uh, take the risk of leaving Syria and have been in that environment and move their family uh, into the complete unknown of Germany or some other country in Europe? Well, these tend to be uh, very entrepreneurial risk takers almost by definition. And yeah. so in some sense, to have some of that population you know, in, in, uh, brought into a country can be really, really good for its economy um, uh, in terms of doing building. But that is a long-term thing. And, and and unfortunately, in the short run, what a lot of the local population is going to be seeing is, here are all these people now all of a sudden uh, competing for the same jobs that I want to. And uh, and it's not like they're all necessarily simply going to take the, the day laborer jobs that no one else wants. I think that they, they also have the same aspirations as the standing population, that yeah. maybe they'll do that initially, but they also want to have the, um, um, the the middle, but but it's but in, in some so in some sense I think it's a it's a perception problem rather than a, a long run real one. Uh, gut feeling, Sarah, that we'll see the the U.S. maybe change its its tune a little bit on this in the in the weeks and months to come, or is this going to be pretty much a hardline status? Do you think? I would hope that we'll we'll see more action on the part of the United States uh, moving forward. It's always challenging to deal with immigration issues. Um, it's always challenging to deal with the intersection of immigration in the context of ISIS and Syria, right? Yeah. There are a host of political challenges, uh, but it is a real opportunity for the U.S. to take a leadership role, and I would hope that we see that. Bob? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that one of the concerns that I've, I've read about recently where there's actually been a decline in immigration within the United States, and that actually is a uh, is not an economic positive because um, uh, this is a country which was uh, born and developed and achieved greatness through immigration, and to suddenly turn our backs on that is just, is, 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 doesn't bode well for the future. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.